their sins and turn to Christ have forgiveness of their sins because of his merits and not our own. And it's in that comfort and hope that we come to worship God this morning. Let us now open God's word that he would begin to teach us. Our reading this morning comes from 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter one, and we'll read verses three through seven. Second Peter one verse three, His divine power has granted to us all has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So far from God's word. As we reflect on what we've read together, let's sing together from Psalm 12, stanzas 4 and 5. The text to which we'll be giving our attention this morning is from Philippians chapter 4. Continuing in our series on Philippians. Philippians 4, verses 8 through 9. Finally, brothers... Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So far, God's word. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, you notice the first word in our text is finally, in verse 8. This is how you know that Paul was a preacher, because it's the second time he said finally, and the first time he was only halfway through. So we can take that for our comfort and encouragement. But Paul really does mean finally this time. 
He's really reaching the very end of the letter. And we've been seeing this in the last several weeks. He's giving now his final words to the Philippians. He's transitioned from uh, words and issues that deal with the specific things going on in Philippi to exhortations that he wants always to be on their minds. These are his last words, and he wants them to count. So we saw how he uh, left them with the exhortation, Rejoice in the Lord always doesn't matter the circumstances. That belongs in the church at all times. Then let your reasonableness be known to all men, since the Lord is at hand. And then, as we saw last week, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication make your request known to God. These are things that ought to be on the mind of the church at all times. And so now Paul sums it up with one final exhortation, and that's what we have in verse 8 and 9. There's, there's three elements in this text, and you can see them pretty plainly before you. First, there's an exhortation in verse 8 that has to do specifically with our thoughts. He says all of these things, uh, think about these things. Then there's an example. Paul says, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. Uh, there's an example And finally, there's a promise. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So there's there's an exhortation, there's an example, and there's a promise. We'll spend the bulk of our time on the exhortation, because the rest uh, supplement and follow from that. So we want to think especially about verse 8 in front of us. What's, what's surprising about verse 8 is that we might have expected in Paul's final words to say, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, pure, lovely, etc., do these things. But you notice that's not what Paul says. Paul wants us to see behind what we do to what we think about, what lives on our minds. And the reason that Paul does this is because everything else flows out of our thoughts, or, or perhaps even more accurately, our, our hearts. That when, when the Bible speaks of our thoughts, uh, it's a, or our hearts, it's a synonym also for our thoughts. Our thoughts are considered part of the heart in, in scriptural language. And it's from our hearts that our thoughts come, and from our hearts that our lives ultimately flow out. Proverbs 4 verse 23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Our heart shapes our thoughts. Our thoughts shape our words and our actions. And our actions will become our habits. And our habits will define our character. Our life flows out of our hearts and our thoughts. In other words then, Our thoughts matter. They matter for our lives and they matter before God. The things that we as Christians choose to set our minds on are the things that will ultimately characterize our lives. What lives in your mind will ultimately live in your life. The Lord Jesus said it this way in in Mark 7, For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. That's looking at 
it from the negative side, from the, the mind of the unregenerate man, all of those actions flow out of what lives in that man's mind. So your thoughts matter. The things that you choose to think about over the course of the day, the things that run through your mind or play over and over again in your mind, the things that you fantasize about, they matter before God. God wants us to know him from the heart at that level, which obviously involves also our thoughts. They matter because they are either honoring or dishonoring to God, and they will ultimately shape how we live. You think of it this way, our our thoughts are a throne room. Whatever we put on that throne will ultimately rule us. Now, we don't often think about our thoughts as something that's under our control. We we sort of think, well, I I just think, and whatever happens to be on my mind, that's what I, I think about. Well, biblically speaking, that is not true. We need to know that it's not true, or at least it shouldn't be true in the Christian life. We are responsible for our thoughts, for, uh, for our, our entire thought life. And our thought life will ultimately shape our practice. You can see this in the Ten Commandments, especially in the way the, the Heidelberg Catechism breaks them down. Uh, there's always the commandment, and then there's an application to the heart. So murder begins with hatred and envy. Adultery begins with lust. Theft begins with covetousness. In fact, there's an entire commandment devoted to covetousness. So we are responsible for our thoughts. And Paul tells us now in these verses, we must rule over our thoughts. We must control what uh, exists in our minds. There are thoughts, in other words, that do not belong in the mind of a Christian, and they ought to be put out. And there are thoughts that ought to be on the mind of a Christian that should, uh, that we ought to be deliberate about putting there on our minds. Now, I want to stop and make sure that we don't misunderstand where Paul is going with this passage. This passage has often been taken and even preached as a call to sort of positive thinking. And the idea is if we choose to fill our minds with positive thoughts and we repeat positive things to ourselves throughout the day, we will, by that means, ultimately shape our character and our destiny. That message has been preached from this text in in many churches here in North America. And and the the idea is is that this is what Paul is urging us to, to just think positively. But you'll notice in in the verses, in the words ahead of us, uh, that has nothing to do with what Paul is saying. Not once does he mention whatever is positive, think about these things. And, And that line of thinking can be fundamentally misleading and even dangerous. What's positive to you might not be positive before God. And so it's good to remember, Paul is writing this to Christians, and you'll notice that the very first thing on the list, which he says should characterize our thoughts, are those things that are true. If we choose to only think about what's positive, that will ultimately mean there are certain things that are true that we don't want to think about. And there are other things that are false that may feel positive to us that we would like 
to think about. So if we choose to only think about what's positive, it can ultimately render us unable to deal with reality, and especially the reality of sin and brokenness and weakness within ourselves that we're called to face and deal with. It's not a positive thought, but it's a true thought, and it's one that God calls us to think about. So, so Scripture is concerned with those things, first of all, that are true, not necessarily positive. Uh, scripture does aim at what is ultimately positive and good, that is, the glory of God. But on the road there, there are many things that are hard that we must face and deal with. And so to choose to, to make a commitment, I will not think negative or, or critical thoughts, and I will only think positively, that can end up robbing us of our ability to discern and and think and judge as Scripture calls us to do. So let's give our attention then to the things that Paul does call us to think about. Again, as I mentioned, the first thing on that list is those things that are true. God is the God of truth. He, He values truth above everything else because he values his glory above everything else. The more that we know of the truth, the more that we will know of his glory. And so as Christians, especially as Christians who have been brought from darkness to light, the call is for us to then fill our minds with what is true. Uh, the, the theme of darkness and light in Scripture is, is a way of speaking about uh, deception and truth, lies and, and truth. And so we are called to put out the darkness to let the light of truth shine. Now, the, the temptation, and you see this especially in, in much of the self help literature out there, is to discard what is true for what makes me happy or what works in my life. We're all vulnerable to, to this pattern of thinking. If it feels good, then it's true for me. What we're called here to do is to resist that temptation, to believe or think about only what feels good or what works, and instead to embrace what is true. Because we know that God is true. God is the God of truth. So Paul calls uh, us to fill our minds with the truth. Now, obviously, the greatest source for that truth is Scripture itself, the Word of God. If we're going to hear Paul's call and and obey it and let our minds be filled with truth, that will of necessity mean spending time in Scripture, meditating, memorizing Scripture, applying Scripture to our lives, considering how it touches down into our lives. We want to discover what is true and correct our own false assumptions and wrong understandings, things that may not be true. We want our minds, to to use a scriptural phrase, to grow in the knowledge of the truth. There's growth that can happen with respect to the truth. Remember Paul's uh, prayer for the Philippians right at the very beginning of this letter, chapter 1, verse 9. Uh, We saw this in the very first sermon in this series. This is the whole purpose of Paul's letter, that the Philippians' love for Christ would abound with all knowledge and discernment. So that knowledge and discernment refers to growing in the truth. Do not let your relationship with God and your relationship with Christ only be determined by 
what makes you feel good or what works, grow courageously into the truth, and you will discover a far deeper joy there in the truth. So that's the first thing on the list, and that determines and shapes everything else that follows. All the other qualities are determined by that first standard. They must first be true. The second quality that Paul lists is those things that are honorable. Some translations use the word noble here, which is just as good a a translation. It's a word that was especially used in in sacred settings. So you could also speak of uh, those things that are revered or majestic. Uh, In other words, Paul is exhorting the Philippians to dwell on those truths that are not just true, but also gloriously true or majestically true. And this is, of course, referring to the truth of the gospel in the first place. The calling is to let your your minds and your words be shaped by the knowledge of God's glory, God's majesty that you encounter, first of all, in the gospel. And to grow then in that knowledge of what is true and what is glorious, so so that our minds begin to be shaped by the knowledge of God's glory. Uh, Some translations also uh, translate this word as serious or weighty. Uh, In the Old Testament, the word uh, glory literally is the same word as the word heavy. So they speak of God's heaviness. It's God's weightiness, God's uh, immenseness. Uh, To read that into into this uh, verse is possible. You can speak of uh, let your minds dwell on that which is weighty, that which is heavy. Uh, but we, we do want to understand, if we're going to take it that way, we want to understand that Paul is not saying that we should only ever you know, be serious or only ever think about weighty matters as if we're supposed to walk around with some serious weighty frown on our faces. Uh, that's not the point that Paul is making. The point is, let that which is weighty and majestic and glorious rule the way that you think. Uh, our minds should grow in the knowledge of what is true and also significant and, and great, not, not merely that which is light and, and frivolous. Uh, we live, after all, in light of eternity. And so we want to let our minds, uh, the things that fill our minds ought to reflect that. Third, Paul says, whatever is just. Other translations might say right or upright, and those are very good translations as well. The call is to learn and to reflect on what is right and just in God's eyes. Like all of the qualities that that Paul mentions, the point is that the Philippians would, as they reflect on God's word, would become so acquainted with God's standard of justice that it would ultimately become their standard of justice, the one that lives and rules in their own heart, so that it sort of becomes second nature to live according to that rule of life. Now, just like with the first category, whatever is true, so with justice, it's not something that we get to invent for ourselves. It's something that is unchanging and abiding. God's justice stands forever. It's unmoving. It's always the same. And so justice is also uh, something that we learn from God's word. It's it's learning to think as God thinks. It's learning to love what God loves, to hate what God hates. 
to, to say yes and amen to God's judgments and to say that from a heart level so that we can live a life that ultimately reflects God's character. How do you become more like God by becoming acquainted with God's ways and letting that acquaintance begin to rule your mind and your heart? Fourth, Paul says, whatever is pure. Uh, the word that he that he uses is not the word that usually uh, refers to sexual purity. Um, and the word that most often when you find the word pure in Scripture, it's a different word than, than this one. Um, there, there certainly are connections. But Paul is, is thinking more broadly here of all of that which is untainted with evil, uh, free from deception. The Greek translation of the Old Testament used this word in, in Psalm 12 where it said the, the words of the Lord are pure words, seven times refined. Uh, the point there is, is that they are true all the way through. You can cut them down to the heart of them and you will still find truth there. You can't take apart God's words and discover deception and lies within them. It's that kind of purity. Uh, It's the same word that John uses in in 1 John 3, verse 3. uh, Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Uh, This word often has connotations of honesty and innocence. It has to do with being uncompromised in in your integrity. Paul uses the word to Timothy when he warns him against hastily appointing people people to office in ways that might compromise his own ministry. He says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others, but keep yourself pure. Uh, the call then is to learn what it means to live a life that is, that is pure and uncompromised in light of the gospel and our identity in Christ. It's to have eyes to see where we could be compromised in our thinking and then to, to avoid that thinking. Now, obviously, this does apply also to the realm of sexual purity. It means guarding our thoughts from that which is compromised with respect to God's holiness. It means thinking carefully about the things that we entertain in our minds. Our old nature is inclined to impurity, and we have to watch over our minds in much the same way. This is a metaphor that... Uh, The Song of Solomon uses uh, watching over a garden so that it does not become full of weeds. So it is with our minds, especially with respect to sexual purity. That is our old nature. Weeds want to grow there, and we have to guard our minds, to watch over our minds that they would not. Uh, Impurity seems to spring up naturally within us. So the call is here then to, to carefully and constantly weed out that which might live in our minds that is impure and to focus on it and cultivate that which is pure. Now this exhortation from Paul obviously has to um, do with our speech as well. If we're going to think about what's pure, 
then, that, then our words also ought to reflect that. Uh, Paul wrote elsewhere to the Ephesians, uh, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So the call is not only to watch our minds, but obviously to watch what flows out of our minds, and especially our words. We're to learn and to think about what is pure, so that our words and our lives may also reflect that. Fifth, Paul, Paul says, whatever is lovely. It's a rare word that he uses. It's not used anywhere else in the Bible. And it refers to that which is intrinsically attractive and beautiful. There's one occurrence of the word in in Jewish uh, wisdom literature in in one of the apocryphal books in Sirach 20. Um, And this is a book that Paul certainly would have known. He quotes other parts of of this book in Scripture. Uh, In Sirach 20, it says... The wise make themselves lovely by only a few words, and the courtesies of fools are wasted. Uh, So this word has to do with that which is intrinsically lovely, that which is uh, beautiful and and winsome. So Paul calls the the Philippians to let their minds dwell on that which is attractive or, or beautiful or winsome, uh, to, to learn what all people can't help but appreciate as beautiful. No matter how depraved society becomes, we're still made in God's image, and we still have an ability to discern uh, to some degree what is uh, attractive, what is beautiful, what is lovely. And Paul commends that to them, to think about that which is lovely. Uh, sixth, the last quality that Paul lists is, is very closely related to that, and that is all that which is commendable. It's also a rare word. also doesn't occur anywhere else in Scripture. But just like the term lovely, it refers to those things that are inherently good, those things that uh, people cannot help but commend and respect. It's that which is commendable of its own nature. You don't need someone else's authority to say that this is good. It's, it's in itself uh, commendable. Now, both these words, lovely and commendable, They don't mean that we as Christians should be adapting our lives to whatever the world around us thinks is lovely and commendable. But it's recognizing that we do live still in God's word and people are still made in God's image. And so what is lovely and commendable will generally be respected and admired even in a fallen society like ours. Uh, as Peter says um, to, to the Christians he was writing to, and this was in a society at least as depraved as ours, he says, who will persecute you for what is good? It's not to deny that it happens, but it's to say, still in general, people have a sense of what is lovely and what is commendable, and we should strive to, to let our minds and ultimately our lives reflect that. Uh, and so loveliness and, and commendable commendableness, uh, are, are both things that are objective terms. Um, they're, they're defined by God's standards, and, and they're unchanging. Uh, in, in God's world, beauty 
and loveliness and all that is worthy of respect. Uh, These are objective categories. They're unchanging, just like truth and justice. And so that means we can learn them from God's word and through God's spirit. God teaches loveliness and, and that which is commendable. Well, finally, Paul summarizes that entire list by saying, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The term excellence can also be translated as virtue, but in the Bible, it's always a moral excellence, um, and it's, a, it's an excellence that's rooted in God's excellence. That's what we saw in Second uh, Peter chapter 1. Uh, the Apostle Peter wrote about the excellence of God and then calls the church to, to make every effort to supplement your faith with excellence. So the point is that we as Christians, as we come to know God, we see God's Uh, perfection, God's uh, superiority in every respect, and we learn to begin living that out ourselves as we become more and more acquainted with him. Uh, We know that he is truthful. He is honorable. He is just. He is pure. And and we, we come to understand that those qualities are desirable, those qualities are good. If they belong to our God, then we want them also for ourselves. We learn how precious the truth is, how beautiful honor is, how, how badly our world needs that which is pure and, and right, how, how precious justice is, how precious that purity is. And we know God is the source of all of those things. And God is ultimately the definition of what is true and right and just and pure and honorable. And so when scripture then speaks of of virtue and excellence, for Christians, those terms refer to the character of God himself. We're called to learn God's character and to reflect that now that we are in relationship with him. The same is true of the expression that Paul uses, if there's anything worthy of praise. No one, nothing is more worthy of praise than our God. And everything that God does is worthy of praise. So the calling there too is to learn and reflect the character of God himself, the praiseworthiness of God. Let that also be visible in our lives. So the calling then from Paul is is that we would think about or dwell upon all of these things. Ultimately, what what we say, what we live, what we do, and indeed who we are, flows out of these things that we choose to think about and dwell upon. Now, it should be, be said very, very clearly that this command that Paul gives us is given in the context of the gospel. Apart from that context, you could easily preach this text uh, as moralism, a command to do this and and to do that and to try harder and to improve yourselves. But to to preach it that way would completely miss the tone that Paul himself is is giving this verse to the Philippians. Uh, We have to remember this verse is written in the context of the gospel. The call is not to do this so that. God would love us, uh, or to do this so that we could come to know God's favor. No, this was written to, to believers, to sinners who had come to know God's favor, his undeserved 
favor in Christ uh, through the gospel that, that Christ had already lived the life they should have lived, had the thoughts they should have had, and died the death that they deserved to die so that they could be reconciled to God and be in his favor. Outside of that context of the gospel, uh, these, these verses might sound very noble and very beautiful, but it, it would be moralism, and it would ultimately lead either to pride to people saying, yes, I, I do reflect these things. This is my thought life. Or it would lead to, to bitter disappointment, as would be the case probably for most of us. Frustration with the fact that our lives don't reflect uh, these qualities the way that they should. We need to hear this in the context of the gospel. You are reconciled to God. God loves you already as his child. And it's in that context that we want to begin to learn God's character and reflect it also in our thoughts. And, and taking this call to heart cannot happen without the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's through the Spirit, after all, that we come to know what is true. It's through the Spirit that our lives are going to be reshaped by the knowledge of God's majesty and glory. It's through the Spirit that we learn and love the justice and the righteousness of God. It's through the Spirit that we become pure as God is pure. It's through the Spirit that our lives become lovely and commendable. And so if we are to take this exhortation to heart, it certainly begins with praying for the Holy Spirit. Uh, we need the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit to begin putting these uh, qualities into our minds. So that's the, the exhortation then, to think about all of these things. Paul then gives us an example to remember and to look to. In verse 9 he says, The things that you have learned and received and seen and heard in me, practice these things. You see, we might hear Paul's command and wonder, well, what is true and what is honorable, what is just? Well, Paul gives the Philippians four things to think about. The things that they had learned from him, the, thing, the traditions that they had received from him, the things that they saw in him personally, and the things that they had heard from him since he had left. In other words, Paul is saying to them in this verse, you already know what's true and what's honorable and just because you've already learned these things in the gospel. He's not giving them new teaching. You can imagine the hours and hours and indeed days of teaching during the time that Paul was there in the church in Philippi. We don't get to know all the details of what was said there, what was taught there, but the Philippians did know this, and that's what Paul is referring to. They would have learned about the gospel and what's the gospel mean for our lives as Christians. What does it mean to live as a Christian what does it mean to pray to God as our Father, or to raise our children as, as Christian children, or to do business as a Christian business, or to, to have a relationship with the government as Christians? Uh, all of those things were part of the teaching that they had certainly received from Paul, and we don't get to know all of all of the details there, and we don't need to, because we too have learned these same things. That's why we have uh, the gospel and, and the whole word of God written for us. 
so we don't know exactly what was discussed between Paul and the, and the Philippians, but we have all of these same things in God's word ourselves. So Paul is, is reminding them, hold on to those things that you've already learned and received and heard and seen and keep growing in those things. And he adds especially the example, what you've seen and heard in me. Uh, so it isn't just what Paul had taught them, but also the example that Paul had, had given them. And he urges them to follow that. That might strike us as, as almost prideful when Paul tells the Philippians to follow his example. But Paul was, was simply being sincere. He had left an example for them to follow. It's not unbiblical to say follow the example of this or that Christian. It's not to say that they're perfect, but it's to say that they have things that we can learn from. And that's the point that Paul is also giving uh, to the Philippians. They had seen in Paul what it means to live as a Christian. They had heard from Paul in the years afterwards, and even now as he was in jail, uh, what, uh, they, they had heard things about Paul that they had uh, room to grow in and to, to learn from. You think of the, the Philippian jailer who could especially attest to this, um, to Paul's joy, to Paul's grace as he was even in prison. So Paul had left an example for them to follow. And it's not wrong to say, follow the example of someone like Paul. So Paul is, is only being sincere here. He's not saying he, he was perfect, but that he had given them an example to follow. That's then the example. And finally, he leaves them with a promise. He tells them, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And that's a promise for all Christians, for us as well. As we fix our mind on these things, as we let our minds be transformed and renewed, to use the words of Romans 12, as that happens... We, we can be comforted with God's promise that he is with us during that transformation of our minds. And he will surround us with his peace. That's why we can embrace what is true without fear. Because yes, God will reveal things that are uncomfortably true, but he will also give us his peace. Paul had made the same promise just a couple of verses ago. We saw it. Uh, last week when he encouraged the Philippians not to be anxious about anything. And he said, The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So now Paul makes that promise once more. And he exhorts them, Fix your mind on these things and trust that the God of peace will surround you as you do so. Now understand, this isn't meant so much as, as a conditional promise, as in, if you practice these things, then the God of peace uh, will be with you, but, but otherwise he won't. It's more of a covenant promise, as in, uh, as God's people, your obligation is to let your minds be renewed in these ways. And God's promise is that he will be with you and give you his peace. In fact, the, the very phrase, the God of peace, uh, indicates that Paul is thinking in Old Testament covenantal terms. Paul, of course, is not divorced from the Old Testament. Uh, God had promised to give his people peace, and that promise is carried through, carried forward in the New Testament for all who believe. And, and that peace is what the Jews called shalom. It, it's, a, it's a big concept in, in Judaism. Uh, it's not just 
peace of mind, but it's a, it's a much deeper and more whole peace of, of life. It's peace with God himself, and it's, it includes the sum of all of God's blessings that are with those who, who experience God's presence and nearness. It's why Jerusalem was given that name, Jeru Shalom, the city of peace, because there's, there's no peace and blessing like the place where God himself dwells. So Paul's call here, here is practice these things that you've learned, received, heard, and seen, and rest in God's promise that he is near you, he is with you, and he gives you his peace as he has always promised. So brothers and sisters, with that promise in mind then, let me just conclude with some thoughts on how we can uh, practically put this exhortation uh, into practice. The call is for us to let our minds dwell on these things because, as I've mentioned, the things we choose to think about will be ultimately the things that we live out. So how can we put these things into practice? Let me just offer five concluding exhortations. First, we must pray for the Holy Spirit to work in us. We must pray daily, constantly, for God to work in us through His Spirit. If our minds are going to change, it will only ever be the result of the Holy Spirit's work. So pray for the Holy Spirit to show you what is true and what is honorable and what is just, etc. To help you to understand uh, what, and, and to love that true justice and righteousness. To enable you to weed out those things that are still impure, that still exist in your thoughts and perhaps even in your words to pray that the Holy Spirit would make you pure before him and to transform your, your thought life and, and ultimately the life that you live out. So first, we must pray for the Holy Spirit to do his work within us. Second, we must immerse ourselves in the word of God. We, we want to take in God's word as much as possible by being here in church by being taught by him through the preaching, but also through reading Christian books that are rooted in God's word. And I say that on purpose, those books that are rooted in God's word. Self-help literature, it may be of some value, but look for the books that take you deep into the word of God. That's where you grow in wisdom. True wisdom is found in God's word. And of course, there's no substitute for daily, thoughtful, meditative reading of God's word itself. If our minds are going to be filled with the things that Paul speaks of here, it will only be by drinking deeply of the word of God. So it's so important to have a time slot devoted to being in the word of God. Third, if our minds are going to be filled with these things, we need to keep watch over what enters by other means. Of course, there are non-Christian books and movies and TV shows that can be watched and read with discernment, but there are many, many others, I would hazard a guess and say the vast majority of the world's entertainment that simply doesn't belong in our minds and in our homes, and, and that ultimately does nothing but take us further from Christ. We have no business taking that content into our brains. And it's not a difference of rated R versus rated PG-13. There's plenty of PG or even G-rated material that does not teach Christian values, that does not belong in, in a Christian's mind. 
And that, of course, that too is, is spiritually discerned. It requires, first of all, knowing God's word well to know uh, what, what might oppose God's word. So the call is, is to, f- to fill our minds with the word of God and to remove from our minds that which is untrue and dishonorable and unjust and impure and ugly in God's eyes and unworthy of commendation. The unregenerate world may stumble upon pieces of the truth. They certainly can, but they do so in darkness. And and the unregenerate mind celebrates all manner of sin and, and perversity. That's not where we want our minds to be. If we invite those sources to speak to us and, and really even preach to us uh, on a regular basis, then there's no way that our minds will be filled with the things that Paul is calling us to, to fill our minds with. It, it's simply impossible. Uh, what is ungodly and unhelpful must be removed. Uh, a friend of mine used to always say, if you want the mind of Christ, you need to turn off the one-eyed Satan in your living room. And we all know the black box that he's, he's speaking of. We can call that sort of rule stuffy or, or prudish, but it certainly is in large part true. And it's true not just of the TV, but just as much of, of the, the books, the music, the radio stations, the magazines that we choose to take in. What we put into our minds uh, will stay there. And we're called to guard what we put in our minds. So brothers and sisters, since you have then received and heard and seen the gospel of Christ and learned the truth of Christ, let that truth rule in your minds. Put it on the forefront of your minds. Remove what is untrue and let what is true begin to rule over you instead. Let Christ's spirit dwell in your minds with power. Wage that war against sin beginning in the battlefield of your mind. And know that as you wage that war, God himself is waging it within you. We saw this a few weeks ago where, he, where Paul called us to... to let, me, let me find it again. In, in chapter 2, verse 12, he says, As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The same is true for the battle that we wage in our minds. As we strive to know what is true, honorable, just, etc., we can recognize that it's God who's doing that transformation within us. So do that and know that the God of peace will be with you. Amen. Let's respond by singing from Psalm 85, stanzas 3 and 4.